Disloyal is a podcast committed to a broad representation of thought, ideas, and creative imaginings. The opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent the opinions of the staff, management, board, or volunteers of the Jewish Museum of Maryland. Strong assimilation narratives pretty consistently in the U.S. immigrant experience. There was a lot of messaging that to succeed in this country, you have to erase your past or, or let go of it, or at least rebrand it in a way that's more palatable. And, and I think these sort of family recipes are often one of the like last things to go. They're the things you hold closest to you. Welcome to Disloyal, a podcast from the Jewish Museum of Maryland. I'm your host, Mark Gunnery. Today, we're wrapping up our series on a fence around the Torah. Stay tuned through the end of this conversation to hear a preview of the next series of Disloyal and for a programming note. And keep up with all things Disloyal at our new website, disloyalpodcast.com. A Fence Around the Torah is the Jewish Museum of Maryland's latest contemporary art exhibit. It explores how Jewish communities navigate the concepts of safety and unsafety in traditional, contemporary, and futuristic ways. I've been speaking with the artists and curators who made the exhibit possible. You can experience the art from this exhibit at offensearoundthetorah.com. Today on the podcast, I'm talking to two of the artists featured in A Fence Around the Torah, Annabelle Rabia and Ariel Tonkin. Together with Coral Cohen and Hannah Eliza Goldman, they created the multimedia group installation that's in the physical center of the exhibit called, I mean, How Do You Define Safety? Annabelle Rabia is an urban farmer, chef, and co-founder of Awafi Kitchen, an Iraqi Jewish cultural food initiative based in Boston. Annabelle contributed a number of recipes to a fence around the Torah, including both family recipes and a new one. Annabelle Verbia, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. I'm also joined by Ariel Tonkin. Ariel Tonkin is a queer mixed Ashka Sephardi Mizrahi artist living on Ohlone land in the so-called San Francisco Bay Area. Ariel works to dismantle white supremacy through art practice, arts and culture organizing, and Jewish and interfaith education work. The Muslim Jewish Arts Fellowship, Arts Jam for Social Change, Sedek Labs, Farah, and Atik Jewish Maker Institute are among their networks of accountability, collective power, creative collaboration, and care. Ariel Tonkin, thanks for joining us. It's great to be back. Annabelle Verbia, I want to start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your culinary practice, and your project, Awafi Kitchen? Sure. So I've always gravitated towards food in, in multiple ways. So growing food, cooking food, learning about the history of food, and uh, grew up with a very rich practice or experience eating uh, the Iraqi food that my family grew up eating and brought and brought here and didn't ever see that represented in the mainstream. And so uh, several years ago, started uh, a Wafi kitchen with my cousins. And this started as a series of pop-up dinners and brunches and lunches um, across restaurants. And 
was very well received. And we share food as a sort of narrative cuisine, telling stories through recipes. I think being Iraqi Jewish, I think it was a very politicized identity, often hard to to talk about. And uh, food felt like a very natural uh, way to have more challenging conversations about history in a way that a lot of people could relate to. Plus, um, I think Iraqi food is amazing and it's great to share it with people. And um, over the years, the the project has evolved and we do less direct cooking for people these days and more cooking classes and, and talks on Iraqi Jewish food and history. And so uh, that's where, you know, how I really connected with Hannah and in the kitchen and how I ended up in this amazing exhibit. You shared some of your own family recipes in this exhibit. How did you learn those recipes and why did you want to present them to people seeing this show? So I learned most of the recipes that I, you know, that I continue to cook and that I share through Awafi mostly through just cooking with family. So assorted family, there's not really a single individual person that I learned from. It really was a a team effort in in terms of preserving these recipes. So uh, largely from my father, who I grew up with um, eating this food, and then um, his siblings and um, his aunts and uncles as well. Um, And so I had a lot of different experiences sort of in the kitchen cooking with them growing up. And then as I got older, being a bit more meticulous about recording these recipes. Um, And so, yeah, many of the recipes weren't written down, but we do have this uh, written record of sorts, which is a series of index cards that my dad and my uncle actually wrote down. Um, They were collected recipes from their mother as she was uh, dying, essentially. Um, And she was initially reluctant to share the cooking with the two men in the family. Um, That wasn't uh, traditional. I think she was resistant at first, but then in her last months of her life realized that this was the way that these recipes were going to get passed down. And so those aren't that old, but they definitely have been aged by use and are, you know, you can see in the in the photos of the recipes are sort of a scribbled mix of Arabic and English and you know, following my my grandmother's very loose instructions often don't have exact amounts. And I think these recipes are when we were developing in the kitchen, which was this this take home recipe box and podcast experience. Um, we talked about the sort of index card recipe as a very universal way that people preserve recipes and and have their grandma's recipes written down. I was thinking about recipes. So my my family actually fled Iraq in 67. And similar to anyone who who leaves their home under those those types of circumstances, didn't have a bunch of heirlooms that they brought with them from the motherland. We have very little tangible, physical remains of their life in Iraq, but that is why a lot of diasporic people hold on to food so much. It's sort of an heirloom of sorts. And so those recipes are the closest tangible thing that I have to family heirlooms from Iraq. Yeah, that makes me think about this line in your artist statement where you say, if you're able to cook the food you grew up with, you can recreate home wherever you go. Can you talk a little bit about that and about food's role in pushing back against cultural erasure? 
Yeah. Well, first, just what you just said about pushing back against cultural erasure. I really do think, I mean, I think there's strong assimilation narratives pretty consistently in the U.S. immigrant experience. There was a lot of messaging that to succeed in this country, you have to erase your past or or let go of it, or at least rebrand it in a way that's more palatable. And, And I think these sort of family recipes are often one of the like last things to go. They're the things you hold closest to you. I think that um, that statement sort of came to me like from the process of learning these recipes that I, you know, as someone, you know, there isn't, there isn't people just full time in the kitchen anymore or necessarily that are, that are tasked with inheriting these recipes. And so you really do have to make, um, you know, we're all like in this capitalist society where we have to be so productive all the time and there isn't necessarily slotted out time to to learn these you know Iraqi food and I think a lot of older style food is very labor intensive um and there often isn't time to learn these recipes but you know in the process of of learning I you know I think especially for me these pastries that I you know was really lucky to learn from cousins and great aunts um, through, you know, multiple rounds of practice once I, you know, finally was at a place where I could recreate them in a way that reminded me of what they tasted like when I was a child, getting getting them at family events, like being fed by my grandmother or other other family members. I had this like very visceral reaction that I was home or that I, you know, was back in these places that felt so comforting to me and back in this, you know, you know, these people who are no longer around, um, you know, some of whom I've lost in the process, like, you know, while learning from them and then being able to recreate these recipes, you know, brings them back in a way. And so that was very empowering in that, you know, now I have this skill and I could go anywhere and I could just, you know, some ingredients are easier or harder to find, but for the most part, I can replicate, you know, these memories in a way. Anyone can really, if they can learn their, their family's recipes. Annabelle, can I share a little bit about the one time we met in person? Sure. Paint the scene for folks at home. Okay, so Annabelle and I met in person in October of 2021, and I was was on the East Coast briefly, and I was whisked away by our mutual dear pal, Nadav David, and all of us are connected through the Mizrahi Collective, which is an amazing collective of Mizrahi, Mizrahi identified folks around the specifically Turtle Island or like around diaspora of the United States. And Nadav scooped me up. I was supposed to be on a plane back home a few hours before my flight got canceled. And then I was like, oh great, you can come to this Mizrahi collective event. Or maybe it even had another name. There's like various forms of how Mizrahi Jews are organizing in like various organizational clumps regionally and nationally. And Nadav was like, oh great, come, we're going to Annabelle's house. So um, Nadav drove like half an hour out of his way to scoop me up. We, we drove out to close to the airport where Annabelle lives. And all of a sudden it was, yeah, it was like there was magic in play instantly. So we came into Annabelle's backyard and the sun is starting to set. And there's this big wooden staircase up to like the brick walled place where Annabelle lives with their roommate. And the kitchen was starting to hum and there's fish on the stove and there's all of these salads in play. And there was a visiting artist whose name is Rafram Haddad. 
a Tunisian artist who is going to be the featured guest of the night. And Annabelle was like producing this giant feast very, very, very quickly from their kitchen. And myself and Nadav and a few other folks just sort of joined in in the swirl and the dance of it and started like bringing dishes and food and condiments and Annabelle hands over this, it's called Amba, it's like a mango pickle um, condiment. And you said something like, like, this is the good stuff. Like this is, yeah, we definitely need this. And you also had this like, maybe it was like a special elderberry vinegar or something like that. There were this, which one, which one? vinegar. Yeah. And so it was this mixture of like very, like traditional recipes. And then also these like special and like um, some of them are, I don't know, quote unquote, like ethnic foods that you would see, like processed ethnic food, like the amba and then the mulberry vinegar, which was clearly like a special farm to table thing of a friend. And all of that's getting mixed in with these traditional Iraqi dishes. And just what I wanted, why I wanted to share that is just like the verve of it and the motion of it and the velocity of it and the smells. And it's just like a surround sound experience of immersion in back home. And all of us are coming from like particularisms inside of back home. But it's like Annabelle conjured this three-dimensional, four-dimensional experience that all of us could just like swirl right into. And so we're carrying down these dishes. It's October. It's, it's of course, the pandemic. So we're, we're gathering outside. And um, someone starts to get a big like bonfire going in the backyard. And then Refram, the artist who was featured that night, just started telling these amazing stories about art and life in Tunisia and like very intense experiences that he's had. And beautiful examples of how so the fish that Annabelle had prepared for all of us fish as a very recurring symbol in art from where all of our people are from and specifically in Tunisia and it's an amuletic symbol and Rafam's used it in incredible ways and he was tying that to his experiences in prison as an artist and um, just there was this really strong felt sense of like such a strong queer presence, such a strong le- like radical left presence and all of it just in the smile and the nurturance of the food and the smells and the fire. And like, this was, it was just so festive of such an in- incredibly electric kind. And I don't know, I met you for the first time that night, but I felt so connected to you ever since. And it's important to share this with folks at home because whatever we all made, um, Hannah, Coral, Annabelle and I, that we are getting to share in this exhibition, is like um, an ob- objects that are encapsulating these lived relationships. And we're all finding each other in some ways very newly and recently, but in the confluence of all of us, we get to remake temporarily these vestiges of the worlds that our families come from that we're all trying to piece together in diaspora. And the aggregate of all of it is like much, much bigger than the sum of its parts. So um, I don't know, just wanted to share that. And it's so exciting to see you again. Yeah, that was really beautiful. Thank you for capturing that in words. Ariel Tonkin, I want to turn to you. Before we get into talking about your art, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about what Annabelle has been saying about food and culture. Does any of this resonate with you and your own food traditions and culinary practices? I guess differently differently and similarly in, in a variety of ways. So I have like strong olfactory memories in like the literal, like the Proustian cookie sense of the word of my grandmother's galette, which is like, it's like a hard biscuit cookie that's not super sweet. And it's, I don't think it has butter in it. It's not like a rich biscuit, but it has these like fennel notes and it's, we dip it in tea and it's 
it's one of my earlier olfactory memories and it connects me to my auntie Titi and all of, all of the aunties and the like whispers of the way Moroccan culture was getting sort of coded over and sandwich layered in between a lot of Ashkenazi intermarriages and things. Galette is one very, very, very strong memory from childhood for me. Annabelle and I have also only just gotten to talk about this ourselves, but I grew up in a big blended Jewish and Catholic family. And I grew up in a system of nine kids and three of my siblings with whom I don't share ancestry. So I'm Moroccan and Ashkenazi, but these, these three siblings of mine are Iraqi Jewish, but via India and Ashkenazi. And their, their mom was born in India and they're very, they were very, very close with their grandparents. So I didn't have tremendous lot of contact with my family, but my step siblings were like very, very, very connected to that part of their lineage. So I think part of also the magic of being around Annabelle is, and also part of what makes my story and lots of Hannah's Coral's story very, I guess, uniquely diasporic is like we're, we're mixes of so many different lineages. And so my way of connecting with part of my dad's family in a lot of ways was through my step siblings. And like they, they, for example, would cancellate like the Torah trope in the Mizrahi way because their grandfather was a cantor and, and had a show in Philadelphia, bringing all those Indian Iraqi Jewish sounds and traditions. So I would say for me, just as Annabelle's grandmother, like right towards the end of her life, like there was transmission of recipes. I didn't necessarily have like many touch points of direct transmission. It's already been passed. Like it's, there was all sorts of things to do with war, rupture, dislocation, immigration, divorce, intermarriage that made those, that direct transmission, not as directly uh, receivable by me, but I guess I represent maybe the, the beginning of the generation of us who are like reaching out more like rhizomatically or horizontally or sideways and like pulling together threads, both from vestiges of family lineage, but then also relationship among peers who are also pulling at their own threads. That makes sense. And we'll just add like the fennel biscuit cookies, exactly what I was thinking of when I was, when I, when that statement about making home wherever you go with some food, I, that's the exact type of, I mean, it might be slightly different, but I think it's essentially the same thing. So um, just to highlight the rhizomatic um, connections, like there's definitely a lot of diversity in the cultures that we come from, like Morocco, Iraq are, are very India are very different, you know, distinct places, but also there's a lot of fluidity in between them. Annabelle, that makes me think of something that you've said around Awafi Kitchen centering, quote, building community between members of the Iraqi diaspora, Jews with lesser known histories, and anyone interested in the history and stories behind food, end quote. Can you speak more about the community building aspect of your work? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I think it started as a way of making people with similar heritage feel seen. And that definitely has been a rewarding experience. Just, you know, hearing feedback from people that are excited to see that as someone who who didn't see that growing up. And, you know, there's a feeling of like, is this just me and my weird family in this little, we're just this floating in space alone, you know, and, and feeling like you're not the only one when you aren't represented. That's, sort of the core of the building community aspect. But um, what was unexpected about starting the project is the scope of who would feel connected. So, you know, we actually had a lot of 
Iraqis of not Jewish heritage, you know, Iraqis even in Iraq, Iraqis of other, you know, Assyrian Iraqis, you know, like other Iraqi minorities, Muslim Iraqis, like all sort of coalescing around the stories we were sharing and and how they resonated with that or or their interest in, you know, like I think Iraqi Jewish history is um is a history of a region, you know, Jews have been there for thousands of years. And so people are interested in that history as a part of their regional history, even if it's not their exact history. And then the other element of people, you know, realizing that, you know, a bunch of, you know, Southwest Asian, North African Jewish people had very similar diaspora narratives and sort of unifying around that. And so just all being able to feel more represented and feel more seen has been important, you know, and actually I will just highlight what one thing, you know, that's been bringing in something I'm really excited about right now is um, I'm bringing sort of my agriculture background into the work in that um, I've co-started this Iraqi seed saving collective and where there's, you know, a lot of these varieties of crops are are really at risk of extinction. And so there's a bunch of North American growers who are um, all of some Iraqi or Mesopotamian heritage that are that are growing these varieties and, and being able to sort of connect with different people that don't have necessarily the same story, same exact story, but really have that same drive to to stay connected to their roots and, and help make sure that they stay around for for years to come. And so that that's been really beautiful in another community of sorts. So we got to wrap up in a couple minutes here, but I want to ask Ariel something else. So you you contributed quite a few pieces to Offense Around the Torah, some of which we already talked about in another episode of the podcast that you were on with Hannah, Lisa Goldman, and Coral Cohen. But I wanted to ask you about this one piece that we didn't get a chance to talk about, which is an amuletic Amazigh vest. Can you tell us about this vest, um, including who created it, how you use it, and why you wanted to include it in this exhibit? And I'm also curious to ask if you can talk a little bit more about reimagining Jewish ritual for for you, because you said in your artist statement that um, this vest is one example of how Arab Jews in the diaspora are reimagining Jewish ritual to connect to parts of our lineage that aren't transmitted through Jewish institutional life in the U.S. So I'm wondering if you can talk talk about the vest through that lens. Yeah, I'll start. I'll work my way backwards. <laughs> so I think that image is coming to me partially because there's been tremendous and like blessedly so like tremendous cultural vibrancy around Yiddish cultural revival and language revival and all sorts of ritual objects and practices and Torah textual practices from Europe. And one of the ritual objects that's become, I guess you could say very popular, but and a little bit more ubiquitous now in, in my queer Jewish communities is called in, in Yiddish parlance, I think it's called Talis Katan, it's or Talit Katan. It's um a small, it's literally translates like a small talit, and it's a four-cornered undershirt-like garment that the fringes that tzitzit are affixed to, and they're worn under clothes and kept really close. So I was gifted and as a long-term loan gift, this incredible wool woven vest by someone named Taya Masher, who's one of the two co-founders of the Kohenet Priestess Institute. But we met, Taya was teaching at the Graduate Theological Union near where I live. And we overlapped briefly in different ways. And Taya is currently living in Morocco. 
and before she left um, left town, she entrusted with me this vest and an incredible Amazigh um, carpet. And one of the colonial names connected to Amazigh is Berber. So that's like a, a more familiar name for a lot of folks. But um, so when I saw this vest, which is, it's like a saddlebag also, it has, it's like a bag in the front in the back. So it's, it's ritual use in the places where my family comes from might not have been imagined as like the same as a talit katan or a small prayer shawl. But I saw the similarity between the form and the shape of this vest and, and this, the saddlebag and the talit katan that a lot of my other friends were using and starting to revive in their own prayer practices. And a light bulb went off for me. And I'm always interested in hybridity and like cr cross-cultural slippages but I thought that I could start praying with this object in a way. And I didn't put fringes on it. I didn't need to, but I, I like playing with these things. That is Ariel Tonkin. Ariel is a queer mixed Ashka Sephardi Mizrahi artist living on Ohlone land in the so-called San Francisco Bay area. Ariel Tonkin, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast again. It's so fun to talk about the work and about our heritage. And I was also talking to Annabelle Rabia. Annabelle is an urban farmer, chef, and co-founder of Awafi Kitchen, an Iraqi Jewish cultural food initiative based in Boston. Annabelle Rabia, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It was great. Yeah, it was great. Like I said at the top of the show, this is a final episode in our series on offense around the Torah. We're taking a break from releasing new episodes over the month of July, but tune in in August when we'll bring you a new series inspired by Blacklist, The Hollywood Red Scare, the exhibit currently on view at the Jewish Museum of Maryland through October 31st, 2022. Blacklist is an original exhibit created by and on loan from Jewish Museum Milwaukee. It tells the story of the Hollywood Red Scare, when actors, screenwriters, directors, and others were banned from working in the mid-20th century U.S. film industry because they were suspected of being communists or communist sympathizers. We'll use the exhibit as a launch pad for talking about how the history of the Hollywood Red Scare resonates today. That's coming up in August. You can keep up with us on our new website, disloyalpodcast.com. You can also listen to all of our past episodes there too. Thank you so much to all of our guests on this series, the artists and curators of Offense Around the Torah, who were so generous with their time. And thank you for listening to Disloyal. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and we'd love to hear your feedback. Visit disloyalpodcast.com or send us an email to disloyal at jewishmuseummd.org. You can follow us on Twitter at jewishmuseummd or on Instagram at jewishmuseum underscore md. Thank you so much to everyone who gave us feedback about the first series. If you're in Baltimore, come visit the JMM. Go to jewishmuseummd.org for more information and to become a member if you're interested in supporting content like this podcast. Visit offensearoundthetorah.com to check out our latest art exhibit. Disloyal is a production of the Jewish Museum of Maryland, and it's produced and hosted by me, Mark Gunnery, with production assistance from Naomi Weintraub, the Jewish Museum of Maryland's community artist in residence. An extra special thanks to Naomi this week for designing our website. 
Our executive director is Saul Davis. You can subscribe to Disloyal wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, take care.